the Investment Podcast, brought to you by M&G. This podcast is for investment professionals only. Hello and welcome to the Investment Podcast, brought to you by M&G Investments. My name is Rommel Patel, and I'm delighted to be joined by an expert lineup for today's episode on the great global election cycle of 2024, as billions of people head to the polls in more than 50 countries. While some of these votes have already taken place across Indonesia, Bangladesh and Taiwan to name a few, many more are yet to come, notably in the older democracies like the US and the UK, as well as India, the world's largest democracy. Voting will also take place to elect members to the European Parliament, the world's only directly elected transnational assembly. On the mics today are Anthony Balistrieri, Chief Investment Officer in the Americas, David Parsons, Head of the Fixed Income Investment Specialist Team, Maria Muniki, multi-asset fund manager, and Claudia Kalic, head of emerging markets debt. Welcome to you all. It's a huge pleasure to have you on the investment podcast. Hello. Hello. Very glad to be here. Hi, how are you? Very well, thanks. Well, which elections are you keeping an eye on and why? Maybe, David, I can come to you first. Thank you. I think the obvious ones uh, are going to be the the two you alluded to in the the older part of the world in terms of the democracies, the UK and the US elections. I think they will preoccupy uh, certainly a lot of media time, uh, a lot of speculation. And it's by no means clear cut exactly what the result of the, the US elections will be. And I'm sure Tony will be able to to comment a little more extensively on that. Taking the UK perspective, I think a change of government seems highly likely. Uh, the government's policies uh, seem to be somewhat uh, in disarray at the moment, and the the potential incoming administration will for sure make some changes. I think the the difficulty is the extent to which financial uh, considerations will restrict their ability to enact some of the changes they've previously suggested they were going to make around, for example, green green spending, uh, which we finance by borrowing, and their ability to deliver that over the the course of the next parliament in the UK. I think the the most likely outturn is they will have to scale back their ambitions, and that seems to be the the direction of travel at the moment. So overall, I think a lot of the countries where there are significant elections taking place are running uh, significant deficits, and that in turn will constrain their ability to enact policy surprises. Nevertheless, I think in the US, the the biggest uh, wild card is, of course, um, former President Trump, who's seeking to be president again. And... I think the, the perhaps the bigger picture there around the impact that he would have on US foreign policy is something that we need to be considering as well. So it's not just the the potential financial implications of changes of regime, but I think what it means for geopolitics as well. Tony, was there something that um, you perhaps felt was pertinent as well to the US presidential vote coming up? Yeah, I think it's important to kind of set the stage in terms of how close the election will be and then even the election of both houses. If you look at the U.S., when the House of Representatives, the Democrats would only need to pick up four seats to control the House, um, and all of those seats are up for election this year. The Republicans are defending 18 seats in Biden won districts, and the Democrats are defending five seats. So on the House side, just if you look at the odds, the potential for a Democratic pickup in the House is a bit higher. On the Senate side, the Republicans would only have to pick up two seats if Biden is reelected, one seat if Trump is elected. Um, and there, Democrats are defending 23 seats and Republicans are defending 10. So once again, on the Senate side, it tilts a little bit to the Republicans. But keep in mind, the margins on both houses are very, very tight, four and two. So if you think of a 
split government and very small margins, it would make it very difficult for either party to push large legislative actions through. On the flip side, you have two candidates that are very unpopular with both of their underlying constituents. So both Democrats and Republicans would prefer another candidate than the one they have. So it looks like the U.S. elections will shape up to be one, a very tight one. If you think about the 2016 election, Joe Biden won by 43,000 votes in the Electoral College. Very, very tight. This election could be even closer than that. So I think the ability for large-scale legislation to pass will be will be challenging, regardless of who wins. And David, I think you're right. Some of the uh, the more geopolitical issues where the candidates can use executive actions to affect some changes may be the, the bigger area to watch. Very much agree with what um, David and Anthony highlighted. I think from an asset allocation perspective, what we're looking at very closely is obviously this outcome for U.S. election because of the influence that we'll have on fiscal policy, that level, monetary policy. And we do know that that level of interest rate in the U.S. really has a huge impact, not only on U.S. assets, but really on a broad scale of assets across the globe. And so this will be something that I think asset allocators will be looking at very, very closely to. Interestingly, also the UK, I'm very curious to see how things will evolve there, because obviously we've seen both the equity and bond market suffer significantly um, in the past few years. And, you know, would the next government, whatever that will be or look like, um, be able to shake off this this negative sentiment that is now really permeating UK assets, um, given the circumstance that they will inherit, which is quite a complex economic situation that will come um, in the next terms. And how about you, Claudia, from an emerging markets perspective? What are you keeping an eye on? Yeah, I think um, it's interesting in emerging markets because uh, one of the countries that was mentioned at the beginning was India. And sometimes when you have very large elections in terms of population, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a large uh, investment opportunity. Uh, and by that, I mean, uh, your know, impact on asset prices. So in fact, actually, India, just because the expectations that uh, BJP and the high popularity of Modi remains relatively, relatively high, that leads to potentially status quo in terms of economic policies and so on. So from that perspective, we're actually not focusing as much as we are in a few other elections where we could see then a change on economic policy or um, any other you know, factors that could impact uh, the economy or risk perception towards the country. So I would highlight a couple that we're paying a little bit more attention. Uh, one would be South Africa, which it is expected that the ANC is going to lose the majority uh, in parliament. And then the question begs, um, we are, who do they will build a coalition with? Um, and that's going to have important implications, potentially on the fiscal side, if the coalition includes uh, a party that may be a little bit more lax in terms of spending and so on, um, or not. So we need to see that one will be important. Um, Mexico, uh, again, there could be implications to um, the, the fiscal side of things, even though the front-running candidate, uh, Claudia Sheinbaum, is very much ahead. And then finally, the other country that we may or may not have elections, and that's probably the one that would have the biggest amount of impact on asset prices, is Venezuela, which uh, Maduro has been uh, obviously you know, leading the country for many, many years, and um, whether they will agree to elections that are deemed to be free and fair by international observers, that could easily have a 20-30% impact on prices, either positive impact or rally, if that indeed is the case, or a negative impact, a major sell-off, if that does not happen. 
And staying with the Americas, uh, Tony, the economy is often top of mind for voters, and the US fared well last year, with inflation coming down faster than the UK and Europe. But for many voters, the bottom line is that the cost of living is a lot higher today than it was just a few years ago. How big an issue is this, and could it quickly become the issue in the US if we see a deceleration in the economy? And from an investment perspective, which policies are investors watching most closely? I think it is the issue right now. If you take a survey of voters, that is the top issue for voters in the U.S. is the state of the economy. And while we as investors tend to look a lot at the rate of change, I think what individuals that are actually sitting on the ground are looking at are the actual level. So if you take food, for example, it's 25% higher than it was pre-pandemic. If you look at rent, it's 20% higher. If you're renting an apartment or or buying food, you're still feeling an impact. Um, If you look at real wages, they just turned positive in the second half of 2023. And this is a problem in in most Western democracies where while there was wage growth, it lagged behind inflation for a number of years. So yes, the economy is the focus of most individuals. They are struggling to make ends meet. When you look at it at a high level, from an investment perspective, you look at, you know, inflation has come down dramatically from the highs, which is certainly a positive. From an investment perspective, what I worry about is the fiscal stance. Um, And the bad news there is that no matter which candidate wins, neither one has shown a lot of fiscal discipline. So if you compare the Trump presidency to the Biden presidency and look who spent more, surprisingly, they spent about the same. The fiscal deficit has, has continued to deteriorate. And if you look at interest expense as a percent of spending, and you look at the trajectory, CBO estimates, interest expense will, by 2026, exceed what we spend on defense in the U.S. So I, I worry about crowding out as you know the government has to borrow more and more, and that could be at the expense of corporate borrowing. And once again, this is a problem I think affects all large Western economies. We've, we've all overspent. We've all have large deficits. We didn't term out our debt. Rates are higher, and all of this debt will have to be refunded at a higher level which I think puts pressure on the market broadly. I think you're right there. The, the the two big issues that people from outside the states looking in would think about are the, the debt servicing costs now, which I believe are uh, at or approaching a trillion dollars a year, uh, but also the, the continuing propensity to, to borrow, to spend, with no real sign of, of reining in that borrowing and any kind of discipline being reattached to that. So I think for the time being, as the dollar remains the world's reserve currency, uh, that can persist without causing any kind of significant funding crisis for the US. But over the very long term, it's it's unhealthy. And as we've seen with the example of many emerging market nations, you know, you can only keep borrowing for so long before uh, eventually the uh, the people are not willing to lend at, at anything like current market rates and, and want to to build in a much more significant risk premium. I don't think the US is there yet. But over the longer term, there has to be some discipline re-established to to the level of borrowing in the States. But it's hard to see how it's going to happen in the next five years under either candidate. That's quite interesting because in a certain sense, the US elections are both domestic and global in nature, given what happens in Washington has global ramifications. Claudia, what are some of the top spillover effects of the US election results on emerging markets that investors will be keeping an eye on? For us, let me just speak on that earlier point on the fiscal. I think uh, that is going to be very important because if on a long-term basis, the US curve is going to have to um, you know, to display higher levels of yield because investors would uh, assign a higher 
let's say, risk premium for U.S. assets that clearly puts a floor on emerging market yields because a lot of countries and companies borrow in dollars. So to the extent that it's higher, that could be a, a very long-term negative impact. But speaking a little bit more in the shorter term in terms of the outcome of this particular election coming up, I would say it is mixed. For some countries, I think the impact is actually not going to be meaningful regardless of wins. Um, I think Mexico, for example, we've seen a uh, the U.S.-Mexico relations, which is extremely important from a trade perspective, from migration and so on, uh, from both uh, a Trump presidency and a Biden. And whether the U.S. likes it or not, um, they need Mexico, especially because the relations with China are very, very problematic, to say the least. So I think from that perspective, um, the impact is not going to be as meaningful. Um, the Trump administration did renew the free trade agreement with Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. Uh, back then. So I think uh, that is uh, pretty much status quo for now. Relations with China, as I alluded to, I think they'll be problematic regardless of who wins. And I think the one that could potentially change, sadly for the worse, would be the relation or the foreign policy attention to some um, geopolitical pillars, including Ukraine, the Russia-Ukraine war. I think from that perspective, uh, there will be much less attention and funding. We're already seeing quite a bit of problems uh, passing funding for Ukraine currently in Congress. And I think that would get potentially even more complicated if we were to see a, a Republican administration coming in. I think the geopolitical consequences of some of those elections are very, very interesting, also in the context of macroeconomic development like inflation. So how would inflation going forward be affected of some of those policies, some of this relationship between countries? How would this affect global trade? And I think, you know, we've already seen a lot in the past few years on how quickly inflation can move. Um, and so I think, you know, investors ought to look at these developments very, very closely and expect potentially some volatility, uh, which they will need to react to. Well, David, we're in an era where politics is more important to investors than ever before, given the range of outcomes that can be produced. New governments can have a significant impact on financial markets, a near-immediate phenomenon that the UK witnessed with the Liz Truss administration, whose mini-budget had rather mega consequences. Given the sheer volume of this year's national elections around the world, to what extent have markets priced in the outcomes, and do you think that this could lead to mispricing opportunities? I think that really is the the crux, isn't it, of of this incredible electoral cycle that we're seeing this year with almost half the world's population going to the polls, seven out of the 10 most populous nations on the planet uh, having general elections. But I'm often reminded of uh, a quote attributed to Niels Bohr, well-known Dane and Nobel laureate for physics, who uh, is quoted as saying, Prediction is very difficult, especially if it's about the future. And if you put that in the context of where we are today uh, with all of these elections, I think from an investment perspective, we've seen with the UK, for example, how markets can take badly to an ill-thought-through policy, um, something unexpected. It, it's not always the result of the election. It's kind of what they do next that can often be the um, the trigger point. So I think it's it is I would suggest difficult to position speculatively ahead of a lot of these elections. Rather, I would say that from an investment perspective and learning from the the Liz Trust uh, experience as well, I think it illustrates perfectly the need to be in a position to respond to what happens rather than necessarily to predict. Uh, falling back on my Niels Bohr quote again. So from a perspective of an investor, 
being able to be flexible, being able to to move quickly to take advantage of opportunities that may arise as a consequence of many of these elections. And don't forget, the the elections are will have overlapping implications between countries as well. So incredibly difficult to to sit as an investor and try and make sense of it all ahead of time. But I do think the the response function is key uh, to to maintain in portfolios liquidity, uh, the flexibility to be able to move to to take advantage of what occurs, rather than try to ahead of time anticipate everything that that could could happen. I, I don't know whether perhaps you have anything further to add. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, picking up on your point around, you know, um, surprises really can come at any time, not just during election. I think the, the Trust Quartang um, mini budget event, if so we can call it, it has been particularly interesting. I mean, the way market reacted in that phase with UK guilds really shooting up more than 100 basis points in just a matter of days. I mean, it was an exceptional reaction to uh, a piece of information um, that was released by the government. So I think... You know, in that situation, for example, for us, it has been very interesting to note how this uh, huge volatility was in a way inconsistent with the fundamentals at that time, uh, but also mainly detected by the short-term focus on on this key political event. So um, as an example, this has been a great opportunity for multi-asset portfolios to move tactically around this event, um, adding exposure to the guild markets, and then actually um, reducing this exposure very quickly after the yields reverted, again, in a matter of, of days, really, to... Um, much lower levels and, and providing a very profitable trade uh, for our funds. So absolutely agree that, you know, opportunity exists uh, not only around elections, but on an ongoing basis. David, I couldn't help uh, with that quote. I was, you know, chuckling a little bit because I remember hearing a quote from a former Brazilian finance minister, Pedro Malan. He said at one point, in Brazil, even the past is uncertain. And basically, he was referring to there was a series of uh, pension payments that happened, I don't even, many, many years before. And essentially, um, the people thought maybe those payments were not big enough and they went to court and suddenly they won that court battle. And that basically presented and introduced a huge amount of contingent liabilities to the government. So anything is possible in emerging markets. So not only we have to forecast the future, we have to try to forecast the past as well. Well, turning our attention to a key global issue, Maria. Uh, in order to limit global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, as called for in the Paris Agreement, emissions need to be reduced by 45% by 2030 and reach net zero by 2050. So the next six years is quite a crucial window of opportunity to determining whether we live within planetary boundaries. But we've also seen the climate being a political football. The US was originally a signatory to the Paris Agreement before pulling out and then rejoining. How much of an issue is this to investors? And is there a concern around the US leaving once again if Trump wins the White House? In essence, where could we see global climate leadership coming from? I think there's definitely a huge focus on, you know, what the next administration in the US will bring in terms of um, climate regulation. But if we, you know, we start with the good news, uh, what we've observed in 2023 is that actually renewable energy capacity has grown uh, very significantly, 50% more compared to 2022. And actually, in this um, environment, China played uh, a very, very central role. And in fact, their installation of solar PV increased by more than 100% on previous year. And if we look at the current trajectory for renewable energy capacity growth, the International Energy um, Agency expectations are for continued growth that will lead to levels that 
should not be too far from the target that COP28 renewed just last year of increasing by three times the current capacity for renewable energy. However, we're still not there, obviously, we needed the next few years to, to work in this direction. And also that are areas where there is a potential need for improvement. And in particular, those are uh, the policy. So policy remain absolutely crucial. So it's justified the type of focus that markets are having today in, you know, what the next governments will be and, and what they will do. The permits are a very important area as well. At the moment, it takes quite long to receive those permits. So slimming down of these practices will be very important. Uh, the grid infrastructure is another element that needs to be really uh, upgraded. And again, you know, governments will play a very important role on that. And then finally, um, financing to developing countries to continue to boost the growth in renewable energy capacity. So we are in a trajectory. This growth hasn't stopped. It's continued to accelerate. But we do know that to achieve the targets by uh, 2030, there will need to continue to be a lot of work being done. And there are two, in particular, technologies that will be key in achieving this, and those are clearly solar and wind power, given that the current uh, economical um, uh, uh, terms, which are, which are very favorable compared to other energy sources. Um, this doesn't mask the fact that you know sustainable investing has had some very tough times in the past couple of years. There has been some uh, important headwinds, uh, starting from the higher interest rates, to uh, challenges from a supply chain perspective that led to higher costs, for example, on the wind uh, power side of things, uh, but also higher inventories within solar. And valuations were very elevated after the 2021 rally. So the starting point was also very, very challenging. I think today we're starting to see uh, better opportunities in this space. And yes, there is potential volatility that could still come, especially from, you know, um, the expectation of who is going to lead the U.S. In the, in the next term. Some of it is potentially already priced in. Um, so we're seeing, for example, you know, some of the reaction to earning news on some of the names that we invested in that suggests that there is quite a lot of bad news already discounted by these names. Um, but there is potential for, you know, further opportunities and volatility as we make our way towards the actual election later this year. And just cycling back to the point that you made around the trajectory, Maria, it was reported that the UK is the first major economy to halve its emissions, having cut them by 50% between 1990 and 2022, whilst also growing the economy. So how much of an opportunity is there for the UK to take leadership in this area? I think the UK has done some huge progresses, as uh, you know, many Western economies have actually done. But I think you know, the issue around climate change, it's really global. This is why, you know, both COP28 and the International Energy Agency are very, very keen on the need to continue financing for uh, developing countries to make those changes as well. Uh, so I think, you know, taking the leadership is important, but I think, you know, it can't be one country alone. It has to be really a global effort. And this is why it's so difficult. This is why every time COP28 feels like a little bit of defeat, a little bit of a win, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a long process. So finally, before we go, what are you most excited about? Where do you see the best opportunities from an investment perspective? Claudia, perhaps I can come to you first. Yeah, so basically we find still quite a bit of value on the high yield portion of uh, emerging market at both uh, sovereigns, but also corporates and also local markets, both currency and or selectively rates, um, pockets of Latin America and so on. And the area that we find expensive and we're underweight is really the investment grade segment. 
I think, you know, in the context of um, the uh, political agendas and geopolitics, um, I think there is an expectation that we might see uh, ongoing volatility uh, this year um, ahead of these um, election results. Um, we cannot position and we should not try to position ourselves for a specific outcome. Also because we cannot really know, even if, you know, one candidate or the other wins, how would the market actually respond? I think, you know, the latest Trump victory was uh, kind of, you know, interesting in this regard where, you know, markets reacted in a way that maybe many investors found surprising. But what we know is that, you know, this uncertainty around the outcome of the election and the anticipation of it tends to create um, misallocation of capital. And we should be very watchful um, of this and, and trying to take advantage of some of the opportunities that might come along the way uh, this year. Picking up on those points, I would completely agree. I think it would be probably a, a little bit of a stretch to be positioning yourself ahead of a lot of these major events. Being able to respond to them is very important. And the idea that we can always predict the outturn and the market response, uh, I think you can use the 2016 Brexit referendum as an example of had you coming into that had perfect knowledge and foresight that the result was going to be to vote to leave the EU and positioned yourself uh, as one would anticipate things would turn out, uh, your market positioning would have been completely wrong, even though you knew the result in advance. So one has to be in a position that you can uh, try to respond to these events and, and not try to, to always feel that you can anticipate, even if you anticipate correctly, you may well find that your market positioning isn't isn't as as you would need it to be to to benefit from that insight. So flexibility, uh, being able to to take advantage of opportunities as they arise is going to be, I think, key success factor. All I would say is that from a bond perspective, certainly the global rate cycle seems aligned towards lower rates over the course of this year. So as a bond investor, I think uh, it could be a, a very interesting and and, and potentially positive year for the markets. Um, but the uh, the electoral uncertainties, I think, will challenge us as ever. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, it's a safe bet that as you move into an election cycle in the US, there will be plenty of bouts of volatility as we, as we approach the actual election. I think you have to let valuations be your guide. And I do agree with David that we're probably near the end of the rate cycle. And selfishly, as a fixed income investor, we're looking at levels that we haven't seen in over a decade. So the asset class, to my mind, looks attractive. That being said, if you look at the underlying components on the spread side, those levels are less compelling. But there may be an opportunity later in the year to re-engage in some of those areas with the inherent volatility we'll see from the elections. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for on today's episode of the Investment Podcast. Anthony, Claudia, Maria, David, it's been a real pleasure to sit down and discuss all of this with you for what is a seismic year, both for the public and investors alike. Thanks indeed to you all for sharing your insights. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you. And thanks to you, our audience, as ever, for tuning in. We look forward to seeing you next time, but it's goodbye for now. For further information, please view the notes which accompany this episode. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments will fluctuate, which will cause prices to fall as well as rise, and investors may not get back the original amount they invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information and views expressed should not be taken as a recommendation, advice, or forecast.